0: You can join me in opening your Bibles to the book of Revelation on the last pages of your Bible, and let's continue that song in prayer. Our Father, we come to you acknowledging our full and thorough neediness. And we need you to give us strength to satisfy our souls, to Help us to see reality clearly, to see who You are clearly, and Your Son. And so we pray that as we hear Your Word, that You would speak it into our hearts, and that You would open the eyes of our hearts to behold Your glory in Christ, and that You would do this by Your Spirit's power, so that we leave here different than when we came in. We leave here changed. We leave here more inclined to want to serve You and obey You. We leave here more happy in You and in knowing You. We leave here more filled up with joy and satisfaction from knowing You and knowing that all things work together for our good because we are found in Christ. And we pray that we would be a witness to the world around us in our everyday lives. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, we just finished a sermon series in the book of Acts. And that was a glimpse of the first 30 years of the church. We saw Jesus commission His disciples to make more disciples. We saw those disciples gathered into local churches. We saw those churches multiply throughout the world and across the globe. And then we saw that in Acts, the Apostle Paul, when he would plant a church, he would circle back at some point and revisit them to strengthen them and to encourage them. He also wrote letters to them, and other leaders wrote letters to these churches, and the letters to those churches were written to encourage them and to correct them. And so, when we come to the book of Revelation, at the end of the New Testament, we see Jesus giving specific messages to his, these very churches. So, this is like a check-in on those churches that were planted in the first decades of the church church period. So, the question then we have is, what happened to those churches? They were planted in Acts, and others were planted. What happened? So, this is a check-in. This is, this is Jesus approaching these churches with His words, and we find out what He would say to those churches. That's what Revelation chapters 2 and 3 show us, and that's what we'll be looking at for the next several weeks together, these seven messages to seven churches. And so, when we ask the question, what would Jesus say— to these churches a generation after the book of Acts closes, here's what we find. We learn that they faced great challenges. We learn that they were tempted to have right doctrine in their heads and lose the love in their hearts. We see that they were tempted to stop following Jesus because the majority culture around them didn't like that they followed Jesus and rejected them. They were tempted to give up following Jesus out of fear of being put into prison for being a Christian. We see that they were tempted to notice but not make a big deal about false teaching about Jesus. We see that they were tempted to be complacent in their obedience as individual Christians and as church cultures. We see that they were tempted to think that their affluent lifestyle, which allowed them to live at a certain level, uh, was functionally equivalent to godliness. We see that they were tempted to be half-hearted, more or less, about following Jesus. And so Jesus sent a message to these churches. He has words for them. He has a vision for how He thinks churches should be. He has a vision for what what local churches should care about, for what they should be committed to. And so, he sends a letter to encourage the churches and to correct and challenge the churches. And so, we need the same encouragement and the same correction today. The challenges that that the first century churches faced are the same challenges that we face today as local churches and as Christians. So, over the next several weeks, we're going to be looking at these messages of encouragement and correction that Jesus sent to the churches. There's seven of them, but before we look at these in Revelation chapters 2 and 3, we're going to start where Jesus starts, and that's in Revelation 1. This is the first thing Jesus wants His churches to know, and it's a vision of Himself. This is what He wants His people to know. So, before He wants these churches or us to listen to a word that He says about themselves, He wants them to remember Him. He wants to give them and us, really, the reason why they should listen to Him. That's the function of this text we're going to look at in a few moments here. He's giving them the reason why they and we should have a posture of complete openness to the real Jesus to receive whatever He says to us. And to adjust accordingly. So let's read together Revelation chapter 1, beginning in verse 9 to the end of the chapter. You can follow along as I read. Revelation 1-9, I, John, your brother and partner in the tribulation and the kingdom and the patient endurance that are in Jesus, was on the island called Patmos on account of the word of God and the testimony of Jesus. Write, therefore, the things that you've seen, those that are and those that are to take place after this. As for the mystery of the seven stars that you saw in my right hand and the seven golden lampstands, the seven stars are the angels of the seven churches, and the seven lampstands are the seven churches. There are three movements in this vision that we see here in this section of Scripture. We'll follow each one, and each one tells us something we need to know about Jesus. First, Jesus speaks to us most simply in verses 9 to 11. So John introduces himself at the outset here in verse 9. This is most likely the apostle John, and he introduces himself as a partner of the Christians he's writing to. And he says he's a partner in three things here. First, in tribulation. So he's saying that he's a partner with them, with these believers in these churches in Asia Minor. He's a partner with them in Tribulation. So he's saying, "I suffer just like you. I know you're suffering, and I share in your suffering. I'm sharing with you in this tribulation that we're going through." I wonder how that would have encouraged those Christians, maybe in a unique way, to know that this great apostle, disciple, and friend of Jesus, one of his Jesus's closest friends in ministry, is saying to them that he's personally not excluded. From the kinds of suffering that they're going through. He knows what it's like. He's going through it as well. And there's weight behind his words because at the end of this verse, he says where he was and why he was there. He was on an island. He's on an island on account of the Word of God and the testimony of Jesus. In other words, he's there for a reason. He's not there to go preach the gospel. He's there because he preached the gospel. He's there as an exile He was sent to this island, and he probably can't leave, probably for the rest of his life. So, he's condemned and sent to this island. So, the Christian life for John and for these other believers is not a life free of suffering. Jesus himself promised it. He said that those who follow him will be treated as he was treated. Second, John says that he's a partner in the kingdom, which means that even though they suffer, they're part of something bigger. There is a victory that they're part of. Jesus has brought His kingdom into the world, and John and the believers are sharers in this kingdom, which is already here, and yet they await its fullness to come, as we still await. And third, He's a partner in the patient endurance. This is essentially a summary of the book of Revelation. That's what it's about. Patient endurance through suffering for Christ's sake. That's the book of Revelation, what it's about in a nutshell. So this is John... He's on the island of Patmos, and then as he's there, his whole reality changes in verse 10. He appears to be minding his own business, and then he hears a voice that sounds like a trumpet blast behind him. Verse 10 Write what you see in a book and send it to the seven churches. So these are seven churches in what we refer to as Asia Minor. John was probably very familiar with these churches. He probably lived among them and in that general area before he was exiled to this island. And so what's John to write? Well, he's to write what he sees and what he hears from Jesus. That's the book of Revelation. If you want to know what John was to write, we have it in front of us. He wrote it, and it's preserved for us. It's the whole book. This book is really a letter. It's a pastoral letter from Jesus through John to His churches. And in chapters 2 and 3, Jesus has specific words for specific churches, seven of them, and He addresses one church after another. But Jesus intends for each of those messages that we'll look at in these coming weeks to be intended for all the churches. So, even though He has specific things to say to specific churches here, each one of those messages in chapters 2 and 3 are meant, is meant for all the churches here. And we know this for a couple of reasons. Every message in chapters two and three ends this way, he who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. So, after there's a message given to an individual church, it ends opening it up to anyone who has an ear. Listen to what the Spirit says to the churches. Everyone is supposed to hear what Jesus says to each church. And also, seven isn't an arbitrary number. The book of Revelation is filled with symbolism, and numbers are a big part of this symbolism. And the number seven you may be familiar with if you've studied the book before or other parts of Scripture is a number that refers symbolically often to completion or fullness. So in G- when Jesus writes to seven churches, there's a sense in which He's writing to all the churches. These are, these are representative churches, and so it's for the whole church and all churches to listen to. So, Jesus has a message for His churches. He had a message for these churches in the first century, and He has a message for Zionsville Fellowship. He has a message for every church today and throughout history. And so, we need to be open to this. Even though these seven messages in chapters 2 and 3 were not written to us in the direct way that they were to each of those churches, they are for us, just as they're for every church And this is encouraging because the challenges that those churches faced are the challenges we still face today. All of the temptations that these churches faced, we have as Christians and as churches today. Some temptations and challenges are unique to our particular local church or our particular area of churches, spot on the globe, current cultural moment. But all of these challenges that we see the first century churches faced we face as well, and we need to be prepared for them and strengthened for them and to face them. And so we need to be open just as they were open. Consider what it would have been like to be one of those churches that's mentioned, one of the seven. You hear that the Apostle John, who you know and love, has received a vision from Jesus, and you hear that he's written it down. And now someone is bringing this letter, this book of Revelation. To your church. And so the church gathers together like this, calls the church together, and they're going to hear from this letter. And then you hear your church's name mentioned specifically by the Lord Jesus Christ. And He has words for you in particular. And then you hear about neighboring churches as well. It would be like hearing Jesus write a letter to us and in the various churches, and then saying, now to the Church of Zionsville Fellowship, I write this. To the church of Geist Community Church in McCordsville, I write this. To Redeemer Fellowship in Indianapolis, I write this. And we're listening to Jesus give His assessment, give His correction, give His encouragement to specific churches. And we're then meant to listen to all of them and to receive all of them. That's what it would have felt like for these churches in the first century. And then every church would have leaned into what Jesus says to other churches, lest you fall into the same kind of temptations that maybe that particular church fell into. Or so that you can benefit from the encouragement that Jesus gives to a certain church, which you know he would give to you as well, because you're similar in those encouraging ways. So our church isn't mentioned here by name, but this is still for us. And so we listen then with a posture of humble openness, just as we do to all of Scripture all the time. And that leads us to the second movement here, verses 12 to 16. Jesus is speaking to us. He's also with us. I turned to see the voice that was speaking to me, John writes, and on turning, I saw the seven golden lampstands, and in the midst of the lampstands, one like a son of man. And this is the beginning of a symbolic vision. So this is like a dream, The things that John sees here are filled with imaginative symbolism. Sometimes the symbols are clearly explained, sometimes they're not. Sometimes it takes a bit of work to figure out what all this dream or vision refers to, what it all means. But in this case, we find out right away what one of the symbols means, and that's the lampstand. So so John hears this voice like a trumpet blast. He turns around, and the first thing he sees are these lampstands. What do those mean? Well, they're explained down in verse 20. The lampstands are the seven churches. So, when John is told to write to seven churches, he turns around and sees seven lampstands which represent those churches. It's a symbolic way of representing them. It's an imaginative image of churches. And then the most significant thing that we learn about these churches is what John sees next. It's what John sees in the midst of these lampstands. He says, it's one like a son of man in the midst of the lampstands, which are the churches. And we see very quickly that this one like a son of man is a symbolic vision of Jesus. So, here's the point. Jesus is with His churches. Jesus dwells with His churches. So, that's the second thing we see here. Jesus dwells with us as His people. But why are they described as lampstands? Well, almost every verse in the book of Revelation is some kind of echo of something already spoken in the Old Testament. So, if you scratch any verse in the, if Revelation was a scratch-and-sniff sticker, you scratch it, it will smell like the Old Testament, every verse here. There's echoes all throughout here, and that's the case here. The lampstand was in the holy place of the temple, and the priest went into that holy place and tended to the lampstands, trimming its wicks, refilling with oil, keeping the light burning brightly in the temple. And so that's what Jesus is doing here. He's in the midst of the lampstands tending to them like a priest tended to the lampstands in the temple, keeping the, the light shining brightly. And Jesus is writing to the churches then to correct them, to encourage them, right? trimming the wicks, refilling with oil, keeping the light shining brightly, lest the light goes out and that's who we are as his people to be a church burning brightly in this world and Jesus is present among the lampstands to care for us and to help us to shine more brightly. And so this shows us that every church matters to Jesus. The seven churches he writes to are all over the place in terms of you know various degrees of health and sickness and weakness. A couple of them Uh, For a couple of them, Jesus has nothing negative to say. It's sheer encouragement. One of them, however, doesn't get one positive thing to say. It's just correction. But all of them matter to Him, and He's among them. So you matter to Jesus. We as a local church matter moment by moment, to the risen Christ who is alive and has us in his heart and on his mind. And he has opinions about what we're like as a church. Have you ever thought about that? I think we know that, but we all have opinions about churches and about our church, right? We all have values and preferences, things we think are going well, things we think are not. Jesus has his own set. And in Revelation 2 and 3, we learn about the kinds of things that matter to him. And so, it's telling if you just kind of wrote a list of the things you usually care about when you think about relative health or or your preferences about local churches, make a list and then see if Jesus brings up those kinds of things in Revelation 2 and 3. Or make a list of what He does bring up in Revelation 2 and 3 and say, if that's what He cares about, that's what I should care about. These are the kinds of things that matter to Jesus. These are the kinds of things that need to matter to me. And so we have this privilege of hearing Jesus' priorities then for the local church. So really, Revelation 2 and 3 gives us a composite vision of Jesus, Jesus' vision for the local church. So we want to embrace this whole and adjust to this. But who is this Jesus who is with us? We, we need to answer that question because we will only care about the words of Jesus if we know Him truly to the degree that we know what He really is like. We'll only care about what He says to, the, to us to the degree that who He is matters to us. So, what is He like? Well, John tells us in verses 13 to 16, He tells us that He's like a son of man, and then He describes His clothes, and His hair, and His eyes, and His face, even His feet. But it's all a very surprising and otherworldly image, so, before looking at the details, we need to know something about the way in which God chose to communicate this to John. This is, um, as I've said, a highly symbolic vision. It's somewhat like a dream. You have a dream of things, and you don't know quite what it all means. Even, even images can change from one moment to the next, communicating new, new things. This image of Jesus is not likely how we are going to actually see Jesus, In the new creation to come. This is not what Jesus literally looks like to the human eye in normal everyday life. And there are several reasons why we know that this is symbolic. First, this vision is even filled with the word like and as. John isn't even able to describe this very clearly. To give an exact representation of what he sees. He sees one like a son of man, and his clothes were like this, and this was like that, and this was as though it was like this. We see this throughout the book of Revelation, and here, John's reaching for images and ideas in order to describe what he's seeing here. Second, this isn't the only symbolic vision that John sees of Jesus. In other places, we get a different picture of Jesus. John looks and he sees Another symbolic picture of Jesus, and another time, what it is, is a lamb standing as though it's been slain. So it's a lamb that's died and is standing with horns coming out of its head. And that's Jesus, but that's, again, not what Jesus literally looks like. It's a symbolic vision to communicate profound truth about who He is in a powerful way. Third, this image of Jesus has a sword coming out of His mouth a two-edged sword. That's certainly not literal. It's an image used in other places of the Bible to refer to the power of words, the power of His speech, like a sword that cuts to our hearts. So this is about Jesus' speech. And finally, some of the symbols are interpreted. Not all of them, but some of them are. For example, Jesus is standing among the lampstands, but we just learned that the lampstands represent the churches. So these symbols need to be Interpreted. To say that there's one like a Son of Man standing among lampstands, like a priest in the temple, is to say that the Lord Jesus is with His local churches. Now, you may be thinking, well, why did God communicate this way? The book of Revelation is a hard book to understand, and we're going to stop after chapter 3 for now. There's much more of this after here. Well, it helped to know that this is a particular literary genre. It's a certain kind of writing that was around in John's day. It's very similar to a kind of genre of literature called apocalyptic that was around for several hundred years around the time that John lived. It communicates truth through symbols like this, and Jesus decided to appear to John in this highly symbolic way. So, it's, it's a way of communicating that does more than just stating propositional truth. It communicates to our imaginations. It allows truth to be communicated in a powerful way that, takes some, that gives an initial impression of the force of that truth and then causes us to reflect further on it, to understand why did this vision have such an impact on me? And then you think through what the imagery meant, and then you realize the powerful truth that it communicates. But it does take reflection. So, even here, we'll need to do that as we look at these chapters. So, what is this image of Jesus communicating about him? Well, John refers to Jesus first as one like a son of man, so that means at minimum that this vision is of one who looks like a human being. He is like a son of man and John may also have in mind that this person has kingly authority the phrase one like a son of man was used in Daniel 7 in the old testament to refer to someone who would rule and reign over the world eventually and we know that this is ultimately Jesus so here's one who has kingly authority and he's he's a king who's also like a priest that's how he's dressed and remember he's among the lampstands as though he's in the holy place of the temple like a priest. And he's wearing, in verse 13, a long robe with a golden sash around his chest. That's similar to how the priests were dressed in the Old Testament. And his hair is radiating glory and perhaps wisdom, white like wool in snow. His eyes, verse 14, were like a flame of fire, probably referring to his piercing discernment and insight. He sees everything. He sees right to our our hearts and our deepest thoughts, and he discerns with moral clarity. He sees all the injustices done on earth. He discerns all our sins, and he discerns all our spirit empowered acts of righteousness. And then his feet, verse 15, were like burnished bronze refined in a furnace. This may refer to the strength of his feet, strength to crush his enemies. Next, his voice was like the roar of many waters. Have you ever been to Niagara Falls? I haven't. But those who have have told me something about it. It's powerful, right? It's overwhelming. I have stood by waterfalls, powerful waterfalls, and it is overwhelming. The noise and the the power and force of those waterfalls and the sound of it, not being able to hear anything else but that sound—that's this sound of his voice here. Like we saw earlier, that's later in Revelation, described as the voices of his people, which I love hearing us sing in this morning, raising our voices loudly. I encourage you just have those that, that idea from Revelation in your mind as you're driving here each Sunday. Let's crack the sky like thunder with our voices from hearts overflowing with gratefulness to the Lord Jesus. And so that rolling thunder and rolling roaring water of voices that people sing in praise to Jesus is a response to His own roaring thunderous and rolling water's voice here. This is the power of His words. And His words are strong. They're like a two-edged sword. That was an image used in the book of Isaiah to describe the coming King, which we know as Jesus. His words will be like a, a sword to destroy his, enemy with just, his enemies with just the breath of His voice. And finally, His face, like the sun shining in full strength. We just had this eclipse several months ago, and we needed special glasses to even see the sun. We can't handle looking at the sun even in its full strength in the middle of the day for long, and that's what Jesus' face was like in this image. So what do we do with this, vi- this vision of Jesus? Well, the goal is not for us merely to think through the details of what each symbol means. The goal is to create first an overall impression. This is an image that speaks the truth about Jesus, His authority, His wisdom, His discernment, His words, His power, His glory. It takes all of that, and then it translates it into a multi-sensory experience that comes at us and knocks us over. And that's what happened to John when he saw this, right? He fell down on his face as though he was dead, verse 17 says. We don't get the impression that he even had time to think through all of this that he's written. This is after reflection. Right? He's standing there. He hears a voice behind him like a trumpet blast saying, right to these churches, he turns around, sees this vision, and falls on his face as though he's dead. Probably reflecting later on what he saw and what that meant with reflecting even on the Old Testament to understand the vision that he saw. So, this vision is meant to wake us up to the glory and beauty of Jesus. We don't need to try to draw this picture. We don't need to try to paint this and and have that be the reflection we need, though that would be fine. We don't need to uh, just isolate every detail of it, but we can just get this sense that John had from the glory of Jesus. And then we're meant to see what this teaches us about him, what he's like. He's not just tender and meek and mild. He's also powerful with all authority in heaven and on earth. You know, John had something of this experience during Jesus' earthly ministry, referred to as the transfiguration, where Jesus goes up on a mountain and brings these few close disciples up there with Him, and then is radiating in glory. And the disciples don't know what to do with that image uh, because the glory is so great. And now John sees something similar right here. And so, some of us can get too comfortable with Jesus… And we don't have a place for this kind of glory. We treat Him as though He's a cozy, smiley pal who never says anything but affirmation. And so, some of us need to get captured by this greater vision of Jesus. And I say some of us, but I mean all of us, really. Uh, All of us need to be captured by this great vision of Jesus. We all need to have an expanded vision of His power and His authority in our lives, and this is the Jesus who speaks to his churches. This is the Jesus that says you matter to him. This is the Jesus who says he has opinions about your life. This is the Jesus who speaks to every local church on the planet and says, I discern what you are really like. And I have things of encouragement to say, perhaps, and things of correction to say, perhaps. This is the Jesus who's the exalted Lord of every local church. And so he's comforting, but also he can be unsettling because Jesus has opinions, not just of how we think, but also how we live, how we spend our time, how we feel. Our emotions even can be, have moral significance to Him. And so this vision is here for us to say, Jesus, this Jesus, has the right to say whatever He wants to me, and I'm going to receive it. I'm going to open up my life to him. He can say whatever he wants, and I'm not just going to listen. I'm going to respond with all that I am. So this Jesus is with us. He dwells with us. It's this Jesus who's among his local churches. It's this Jesus who is with us right now, this moment. And so we come to the third movement. This Jesus and all his authority is for us. In verses 17 to 20, when John looks like he's had a heart attack or passes out in Jesus's presence, Jesus does not stand aloof from him. He doesn't say, that's right, you got the message. He doesn't say, now you finally put away your small view of me. Now you finally see the real Jesus. Now you're finally responding how you're supposed to. No, what does he do? Verse 17, he takes his right hand, this hand of power, and he stretches it out, just in the same way he used to stretch out to touch the lepers and to heal people out of a heart of compassion. And he takes that hand of power, showing that it's also a hand of compassion, and he touches John. It's as though Jesus is saying with that hand, I am the exalted Lord, and I am also still your friend. So he touches John and he says, Fear not. Don't be afraid. I am the exalted king. It's right for you to bow down at my feet, but you'll also never leave my heart. You never need to be afraid of me. You don't need to be afraid right now. And then Jesus says, I am the first and the last. This is a dense phrase pointing to Jesus' deity, he says, I am, a phrase from the Old Testament that refers to God. And he says, I am the first and the last, a phrase in Revelation that applies both to God the Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. And he says, I am the living one. I died, and behold, I am now alive forevermore, and I have the keys of death and Hades. So, even in this great moment of exaltation and glory, Jesus wants John to remember his death. When Jesus told John about his death, he said that his death was an act of friendship, laying his life down for his friends. And so he doesn't want John to forget his death. But he's also alive. He rose again as the living one, never to die again. He now has the keys of death, which means he has the authority over death. He has conquered it. He can do whatever he wants with it. And because Jesus died and rose, and because he holds the key of death, he can rescue us from the grip of death. He can give whoever, to whomever he wants eternal life, to not have death touch them, that even when we die physically, our spirits liberated to be with Jesus, and then the full liberation comes in the day Jesus returns when our spirits reunited with our body to live forever without any of the effects of death anymore. And so this is the Jesus who's both exalted above us in this vision and whose heart beats deeply for us, the most powerful force in the universe uses that power to touch John. This Jesus who has a sword coming out of his mouth, these words that can, that are like a two-edged sword that can crush enemies, he uses those words first to speak to John, don't be afraid, because John is his friend. So, John's trusted him, and so John can receive this fear not. All those who come to Jesus in faith receive this fear not from Jesus. And so, If you do not yet trust in Jesus' death and resurrection for you, if you've not received His full forgiveness for your sins by taking your place on the cross, you can right now. And you can have this Jesus, this exalted Lord, also be your friend. And you can be reconciled to His heart, and you can hear Him pronounce over your eternal future, don't be afraid. I'm with you, and I'm for you, and you can do that even now. So, why did Jesus appear to John like this? Well, He appeared to give John and the churches to give us this posture of readiness to hear His message. That's the logic of verse 19. Jesus says that He died and rode, rose again, and write therefore these things. In other words, what's coming in the rest of the book and what's coming in chapters 2 and 3, Jesus has messages for His people And he gives this exalted vision of himself to John, and then he says, I've died, I've risen again, I have all authority, therefore write these things. In other words, I'm not not just a random person telling you to write something random. I am the risen Christ. I have all authority, so write these words. So, we want to write or to read these words. John, as he remembered who Jesus really was, he picked up his quill and he started writing with urgency, no doubt. And so we want to have that same posture to read this. We want to lean in and open ourselves up to Jesus, to the real Jesus. We want to have Him shape our view of Him. And so as we continue to go through these next couple chapters in the coming weeks, And as we even step away from this morning, into the next days of this week, into our workplaces, into our homes, into our relationships and friendships, into our challenging situations, into all of the aspects of our life, let's walk out with this vision of Jesus. And the vision of Jesus in Revelation, the vision of the real Jesus, is electrifying. You see how it affected John when we understand who the real Jesus is in all of His truth and power and glory and goodness and grace, it's electrifying. And so, we need to have this, this full view of Jesus because if we only have a comforting Jesus who doesn't also have authority, if we don't have a Jesus who isn't fearful in His glory and uh, it, we only have one that we might refer to as meek and mild without this kind of authority, then that won't change us. That won't be electrifying like it was here. That's a Jesus who doesn't make any demands, a Jesus who doesn't have any expectations for your life, a Jesus who doesn't really have opinions about your life and what you think and feel and do. And if he does, it really doesn't matter a whole lot. It certainly doesn't matter that, that you would even care to learn those things. That won't change us. That's the Jesus of theological liberalism, and it doesn't change anybody. But on the other hand, If we only have a Jesus that's exalted in His glory, in this fearful majesty, then we will respond with the equivalent of John here. We'll fall down on our face and we'll never look up. We'll want to get out of there as fast as we can because we won't be able to know that we can be safe in the presence of this Christ. Either that or we will start trying to get our act together in our own strength and we'll start to respond, and then we'll start to feel superior because we're pulling, we're kind of pulling this off, this majestic Jesus. We're, we're actually meeting His expectations on our own. So we don't want either of those. We want both. We want a Jesus who's exalted in glory and also gentle and comforting in His presence. Because if we have both of these, a deep sense of His glorious perfection and a sense of His grace and comfort, then we'll be transformed. Then we'll be comforted with a comfort that also makes our hearts say, I'll do whatever you want, whatever you say. You're my king and you're my friend. I'll give you everything. One final note, especially as we look ahead to these next few weeks of Revelation 2 and 3. Jesus is for us, but that doesn't mean he doesn't have things against us. If you're in Christ, Jesus is for you, but that doesn't mean he doesn't have things against you. He can be for us and have things against us at the same time. He can love us and accept us fully on terms of grace alone, and yet He can also call us to a deeper repentance and life change, and that's what He does to these churches. So let's expect comfort and let's expect challenge from this Jesus And let's do that as we open our Bibles this week. Let's do that as we speak the truth into one another's lives this week. And let's do this as we approach Revelation chapters 2 and 3 in coming weeks as well.